listening to an episode from our Design Thinking Season, a series of conversations with people talking about their ideas and experiences with the design thinking process, universal design and inclusive design. Hello, welcome to the podcast. I'm Olivia. And I'm Kyle. We're talking with Jack Clark and Matt Obi from Nearform. Nearform is an enterprise software development and capability building company headquartered in Waterford with offices around the world. You are very welcome to the podcast, Jack and Matt. Can you tell us a little about yourselves and your role in Nearform? Hello, I'm Jack Cluck. I'm a software engineer, um, have been a software engineer for 10 or 11 years now. Uh, the last four of those I've spent at Nearform. Um, I primarily work as a front-end developer, making websites, native apps, uh, building UIs and design systems. And I've always had a, a passion for accessibility. Um, and in the last couple of years, have really started to specialize in accessibility too. Um, I've done a couple of professional certifications in accessibility. Um, and in the last uh, year or so with MAP, have been starting to set up an accessibility practice or community within Nearform to try and raise awareness both internally and externally and improve the accessibility of the products that Nearform are building. That's me. Um, so I'm Matt Obi. I'm one of the senior product designers uh, in Nearform, and I'm based down in uh, in Kent, near J- near Jack, actually, so southeast of England. Um, and I think last time we spoke, we had uh, maybe six or so people in our design team. We've got twelve now, so we've grown quite a lot, and I think that reflects the growth across the whole company as well. The whole company is much bigger than it was. Um, but my day to day work is um, working with clients to help them understand what the requirements are for the, the products they want to build, uh, and then I get involved in some of the UI design, UX design. Uh, and the end-to-end design process, really. And then we have other designers come in to um, specialize in the user interface bits specifically and the user experience uh, flows and things as well. But I have kind of a a high-level overview of everything that's going on um, just to help clients build the product that uh, meets the needs um, uh, for their customers. And, yeah, so part of my time is dedicated to accessibility, currently three days a week. Um, So fortunately, Nearform has given us some time to really concentrate on that for the next uh, year or so. Uh, and I get to work with Jack uh, more closely, which is which is excellent. Great. Thank you both for sharing your backgrounds with us. Can you talk uh, about some of the tools that anyone can use to evaluate the accessibility of a web page or an app? Yep. Yeah. Uh, so to evaluate a web uh, a website, first, we I guess we should understand a little bit about the standards. So there is a, a standard called WCAG, um, which is an acronym for the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. So this is the international standard for web accessibility. It's adopted by various laws and regulations around the world. Um, And it really is the go-to for um, evaluating uh, websites and its principles can also be applied to native apps. But WCAG is made up of, the latest version of WCAG 2.1 is made up of 78 success criteria covering four categories, um, perceivable, operable, usable, and robust. and this is all tailored to towards making sure that we have a way, a standard way to understand and evaluate how um, our websites are usable for, for people with disabilities. So this WCAG framework um, can be used um, to, or when we're talking about tools, sorry, there are various tools available to help us evaluate website, websites against WCAG. Um, caveat being that it's not fully automatable. So there are lots of tools and lots of innovation in the tooling space in recent years that can help us when trying to evaluate websites. 
there's always going to be some level of manual expertise required. But when we're talking about tooling, we can broadly break that down into a few categories. So one of those categories would be an accessibility checker. So an accessibility checking tool, um, a few names that I can think of would be Axe and Wave. I can send these tools uh, after the podcast if that's useful too. Um, but these are typically in the form of browser extensions. So you would install, install this in Google Chrome or Microsoft Edge. And essentially, they take a snapshot of a website at a point in time, and they'll analyze it to the best of their ability, checking for um, common violations against those WCAG guidelines. So these automated tools are, are a really useful part of an accessibility um, specialist's tool belt. Uh, they can automate a lot of the tasks that take a lot of time, take somebody, an accessibility expert's uh, time up and free them up to, to do a lot of testing in other areas that need human intervention. So these tools can roughly cover 30 to 40% of the WCAG success criteria. They do quick objective checks. They can check for semantic code. So the HTML that makes up a website, they'll check that and make sure it's semantic. They'll check for color contrast issues to make sure that the text and the background colors uh, have sufficient contrast so that it can be readable by um, as many people as possible. They'll check things like the images on a website to make sure that alternative text is provided for people with visual impairments. They'll check the links on the page and the buttons on the page have, have good text that describes the purpose of the buttons and the links. And they'll check things like the inputs in our forms in a website have labels so that people that are using assistive technology like screen readers can understand what those inputs are requiring um, without being able to see it visually. So these tools are really great. Um, I use them all the time, day to day. Uh, they let you snapshot full pages at once or some of them also allow you to focus on smaller parts of the page like the header or the footer so you can detect things that are common across the whole website. Um, and then on top of that, there are some really great tools coming out that are doing what I would call guided accessibility testing. And these are things that will bring up to the forefront um, tools uh, or issues on potential issues on a website that aren't easy to automate. So there are issues that need human intervention because they're more subjective. Um, it's not easy for a computer to automatically work out if things are an issue. Examples of this would be whether the alternative text that's provided for an image actually makes sense. So it's a, that's really needs a, a human to check that and say, yes, this accurately describes this image. Uh, but guided accessibility checks will do things like pull all of the images on a page up for you and allow you to go through them one by one and manually decide whether you think this alternative text for an image is good enough. It will also pull up things like the keyboard navigation order. So a really important part of accessibility is that all websites work with the keyboard alone. So the user doesn't have to re rely on a mouse because some users with motor impairments find it hard um, to, to use a mouse and may have to rely on a keyboard. So the keyboard navigation order um, is, is a really important thing that we, that we should always be checking. And these tools will bring up, uh, draw kind of a sequence on the page um, of the keyboard navigation order. And the user, the accessibility specialist using these tools would be able to determine whether that order makes sense. 
And then um, another category would be simulators. So there are simulators available that can show you a what a website might look like for somebody with different visual impairments or for somebody with color blindness, for example, can simulate roughly what we think a website might look like for somebody with color blindness. And these tools, uh, while they're not necessarily intended to check against the WCAG guidelines, are useful for building empathy for us to start to understand the struggles that some people with disabilities might be finding when using our site. However, I would caveat that with this, these tools should never replace uh, good user testing. So a really important part of evaluating a website is actually getting some real user testing with users with disabilities, asking them to, to use it and finding out the, the issues and the barriers that they might have with it. Um, but these are tools that kind of help you at least have a little bit of understanding of the barriers that some of our users might be facing. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, just uh, going off of that, I know that onboarding is a key function for apps and web services, but CAPTCHA tests can present uh, challenges, especially for people with some sort of disability. Um, would you just be, would you first just explain quickly for everybody what a CAPTCHA is and then kind of go into why there are CAPTCHAs and if there's like a good CAPTCHA that's a little bit more accessible for people, could you just, I guess, explain about that? Yeah, so uh, a CAPTCHA is uh, it's a completely automated public Turing test for telling computers and humans apart. Uh, and a Turing test is, of course, a test that's meant to discern whether or it's meant to uh, detect a machine. Uh, can a machine present itself as a human and convince someone it is indeed uh, a real person? Uh, and you'll see these CAPTCHAs typically when you're filling in a form, when you're logging in or you're sending a message, and they come up as distorted letters and numbers. Um, Google's got into a, uh, into a pattern of using images, so we'll have you uh, click on all the traffic lights in a grid of a photo. Um, various challenges like that, uh, either involving um, decoding those numbers or picking things up from pictures or solving little puzzles. And they're meant to really stop uh, machines, bots from completing forms, pretending to be humans um, for spamming, for example. Um, but they present real problems for accessibility because they rely on people demonstrating the ability to see things, first of all. So if you're a blind user using a screen reader, you're not going to be able to see a lot of these um, these challenges because if you could, that would defeat the purpose because other machines would be able to see them as well. If your screen reader could detect them, other bots could detect them as well. And some of the ones that use not necessarily sensory challenges, but they use puzzles, math, math challenges, uh, they can be difficult for other groups of people who struggle with those cognitive puzzles as well. Uh, and capture is a problem, um, has been a problem for a while. And in the upcoming version of uh, the standards that, that Jack just mentioned, there's a new guideline around um, accessible authentication specifically, so logging into websites and registering. And that, that says that you can't rely on a cognitive function test, is how they describe it. So that includes captures, but it also includes um, passwords, usernames and password combinations, because that relies on memorizing things, which is a cognitive test. Um, so the guidelines say that one way to meet that that guideline would be to um, support password um, uh, password managers that paste in the passwords for you. That would be a way to satisfy that requirement. But I think it's more likely that we'll see other solutions uh, like magic links. So you put in your email address and you get sent a link that logs you in when you click on the link. Um, more use of biometrics, perhaps of fingerprints and facial recognition. Um, and some other examples of two-factor auth. So when you get a code sent to your phone and you're logging in quite often, you have to type that code in. Um, you might see websites supporting um, USB uh, dongles that you, you plug in instead. 
or push a button on your device rather than um, copying and pasting codes and memorizing codes. So it'll be interesting to see what those new solutions are going to be over the next uh, few years, I think. Great. Thank you very much. Um, can you talk a little bit about how many sites use third-party overlays and the role that these play in accessibility for users? So overlays, uh, for people who aren't familiar, are you might have seen these in the wild on websites, actually. Um, you'll occasionally see a button floating on the screen when you go on a website, which is an accessibility symbol or a, or a, um, a human sign. Um, and they open up a range of tools that let you change things like the contrast and the text size on the website, uh, which, is, which is fine, I guess. Um, but what those tools are often also doing in the background is trying to fix accessibility problems automatically. So they're looking at the code of the website when it loads in the browser, and they're trying to detect failures according to the workout guidelines, and then they're trying to do things in the code that fix them. The problem with that is that they're not really fixing them a lot of the time. They're just introducing changes to mask those problems so that they pass the automated test. For example, they might detect uh, an image that doesn't have a text alternative for it, which is a problem. And then they will try to write some text alternative for it, which they can't do because machines aren't that clever yet. So they'll normally just write some text that sometimes vaguely describes what's in the image, but they don't understand what the purpose of the image is or really what the what the context of the image is. So text that they generate is normally gibberish, but it passes the test at that point. So then the website owner, big businesses, can claim we've passed all the te- we've passed all the, all the tests, so we justify the laws that we need to to meet. Um, so you can't sue us now, uh, and that's the way that these plugin and overlay companies are currently marketing themselves. They've got lots of investment from outside, and they're going to big companies, typically in America, and saying you've got this risk of, of being sued because of accessibility problems. If you install our our overlay, we'll fix all these things. But the ultimate problem is that they need to go back and fix the problems in the website at, in the code level rather than in the browser. Fixes that are going in aren't real fixes at all. So overlays are not good, but unfortunately, they've got a lot of investment. So um, I think they're going to be sticking around for a while. Okay, thank you. Um, the next question is, um, so obviously there's just uh, there are some uh, different pages have like problems with accessibility for people with um, disabilities. So how do you solve these problems when a lot of the underlying failures originate in like the design or the engineering of the of the pages? Hmm. So I know Jack can talk about this, but I'll jump in from the design point of view. Um, so we know that sixty percent or more of the accessibility issues um, actually originate in design or decisions that have not been made in design when they should have been which means they're then detected in in development. So developers have to try and deal with them and fix them. Or they're detected even later during testing or perhaps during a a third-party audit. And right at the end there, it's really expensive to fix things and go back and it's like installing a lift in a a tube station. It's just, it's not easy to do. It's much easier if you're building, uh, if you build it in from the beginning. So we go for a a shift left approach. Shift left being you move the, the work of accessibility from the end of the process to the beginning, to the design and planning stages which means that the solutions we can come up with are far more elegant and they're far more integrated and far more robust than they would be if we try and do them um, in a panic at the end. And that also saves extra work going to developers. Yeah, so thanks, Matt. Um, so from the engineering phase, actually evaluating a live website is is probably too late in the process. That's not where we should be catching accessibility violations, especially if we're building new things. So typically accessibility has always been something that's uh, done at the end. So we'd we'd build a new product, we'd get right through to the release phase, and then we would do an accessibility audit, which might raise 500 accessibility violations that we then have to go back and fix. That feedback loop for fixing those issues is very long because a lot of those have to go all the way back to design. That might 
result in a full redesign of some pages because we hadn't considered accessibility early enough in that development lifecycle. Um, but some of those tools that I've mentioned, uh, like the accessibility checkers that we have browser extensions for, can actually be used in the development phase, um, either via automated testing. So automated tests are, are tests that are run by our machines um, automatically when we're when we're kind of when we're finished building a feature and we're we're going through like a code review process and we're ready to release a feature, we can get machines to automatically run and automatically alert us to accessibility violations that we're building in. And this is a much more iterative uh, approach and easier to catch these things. So every time I pick up a new a new task to work on or a new feature that I'm going to build, for example, I might be building the button that we're going to release for our redesign. If I run accessibility checks against that, that's a lot better time to catch that the color contrast in this button is is not high enough, um, and we're going, that's an accessibility violation. Because at that point, ideally, that would have been caught in the design phase, but there will inevitably be the odd thing that does slip through. But at that point, I can say, Matt, we're about to release this button to hundreds of pages on the site. Just notice that there's a color contrast issue. Shall we update this before I release it? So we've caught that early. The feedback loop is smaller because it's just some designer developer collaboration and we're not actually releasing any bugs, um, accessibility issues into the live website. So again, Matt's touched on it, but we call that the shift left approach. So the earlier we can catch an accessibility violation in that development lifecycle, the better, the more efficient, the more cost-effective it tends to be. Um, and so yeah, automated testing, there are checkers um, that can be built into code editors that are called linters. So as I'm typing my code for my new button on the page, it can automatically be giving me real-time feedback on that code that I'm writing and picking up accessibility violations there. So that's before I've even gone through a code review process. That's in real-time in, in my editor letting me know. Um, and then it, on top of that really just comes down to awareness and education. So when we're building features, we've got to just ask the question, is this accessible? Sometimes that's all it takes. It's not necessarily on every single engineer, software engineer, to be an accessibility specialist, but knowing who to ask, knowing what the right questions are, um, and getting people to ask those questions is really important. If I'm building a new button, make sure I test it with a with a keyboard, not just with my mouse. Even pull up a a screen reader. Um, Mac OS and Windows have screen readers built screen readers built into them these days, so everybody has a screen reader that they can play around with and learn the basics. So on top of these automated toolings, there's always got to be a level of education and awareness building. Um, but the more we can get people thinking about it, the, the less likely we are going to introduce accessibility violations into our finally released product. Great. That makes a ton of sense. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what it takes to establish an accessibility practice within an organization or how Nearform has done that, whether that be through uh, accessible um sign in the day-to-day -day, uh, community at, at Nearform or whether that's through diverse employees or education and just really how Nearform has done, gone about that and how other uh, organizations can, can do that as well. Yeah, so this is a great question and one that we are still working out um, as we go. So as, as we mentioned, we've started to do this at Nearform um, and it's not an easy task. There's a lot of change management required, a lot of awareness building right up to the top of the company. Um, but the first thing that you really have to do is, is work out where you are right now. 
Um, that won't always be pleasant reading. I think a lot of organizations are, are kind of really um, not taking accessibility in consideration um, very much at all. So work out where you are now, work out where you want to get to and set realistic uh, goals for that. For example, if you've got a totally inaccessible website and you don't consider accessibility in, in your recruitment process and those kind of things, you're not going to fix those overnight. So it's all about setting realistic milestones, potentially hiring people that can help you, whether that be external consultancies to work with you or, or investing in uh, hiring the talent internally too. Um, but there are tools out there. So maturity, accessibility maturity models that are kind of standardized frameworks for, um, for determining how well an organization actually takes accessibility into consideration. And there is just a, a lot of a lot of it is communication and awareness building. So create spaces to talk. At Nearform, we use Slack, which is a an instant messaging application that allows you to create lots of different channels, which are uh, lots of different areas for communication. We have an accessibility channel. People know where to go when they're talking about accessibility. If they want advice, if they have questions. Um, let people know who the experts in the company are. Hire them if you don't have any. And then um, once you have a rough idea of, of kind of the level that everybody is, maybe through surveys or chatting to people, identify how you're going to raise that bar. So the baseline of accessibility knowledge can be improved with, with training um, and uh, identifying which training and, and that kind of thing is, is super important there. Um, but if this is a long process for us, we've set kind of a, a yearly goal um, or what we call um, OKRs. We've set a bunch of goals that we want to achieve in the first year. Um, and we've got to be pragmatic and, and know that it's not going to be perfect after that year. But as long as we're moving the needle in the right direction, then things can only get better. Great. Thank you. Um, just to shift the discussion now a little bit, would you be able to talk about some good designs? Like if there are any like websites or apps that you think um, are or just, just designs in general that you think are particularly accessible? Yeah, so I think tackling that from a general point of view, I think the teams that are doing particularly well are those that are baking it in a very low level in their design system. So um, Co-op would be an example. Co-op has recently relaunched their um, design system for the UK. Um, so all their teams go to this design system to reference the brand guidelines, but also um, they have a standard collection of components um, for all the pieces of UI that you will find on the website. And they've baked UI or baked accessibility, excuse me, into those components at a very low level. So anyone who's using those components and consuming them in, in an application gets accessibility for free. Um, and they've also taken the WCAG guidelines uh, that we've been mentioning, and they've written their own set of guidelines on top of that. Because WCAG is very technical, it's hard to read. Um, a lot of teams like co-op decide to write a level of guidance on top. So they've got their own accessibility guidelines that are co-op's interpretation of uh, what accessibility looks like, what good accessibility looks like according to those guidelines. So teams that are doing that, Adobe's doing that, design systems are really key. And I would actually point out away from websites and apps, there are some really cool projects. Um, NaviLens uh, was recently launched with in partnership with Kellogg, I think. You might have seen these barcodes. They're kind of brightly colored QR codes that are cropping up here and there on, on Kellogg packaging. The idea being you can, uh, someone who has the supported app can, um, a visually impaired person can point their phone around and it will pick up these QR codes from quite a long distance because they're they're highly visible. It'll guide them towards that product on the shelf. It'll 
um, provide the nutrition information, for example. So lots of stuff that otherwise wouldn't be accessible to you. Um, they're making it accessible just by adding this extra QR code. I think that's that's really cool. That's a it's a good meeting of the physical retail space with uh, the, the app experience. It's a really good use of the technology. I think. Um, to shift gears again, can we talk a little bit about the accessibility of game consoles and console controls as they continue to adapt um, in the coming years? Yeah, so game. I always think game design is really it's a really fascinating space because it's so different from what Jack and I work on. We work on enterprise software. It'd be very rare for us to make something deliberately difficult, whereas a game is inherently it's meant to present some sort of challenge to the to the user, right? It's, it's meant to be a uh, either challenge. It's meant to test your creativity or test your your speed of reaction or whatever else. So I think game designers have an interesting challenge of of balancing those uh, those demands. Um, accessibility in gaming is sometimes contra- controversial in a weird way. There's kind of some gatekeeping. Some people don't like the idea of adding accessibility features into games because they see that as making them easier. And I think they're really conflating difficulty levels with accessibility. So they see accessibility as a sort of easy mode that you can switch on, um, which doesn't appeal to a lot of people. Um, whereas accessibility is actually a very separate thing and it should be it should present you with some more discrete options so that you adjust the experience uh, according to your needs. Um, Forza 5 won some awards last year for its accessibility. Um, add some features around uh, uh, from the beginning there's a screen reader built into it so any blind users will be able to navigate the menu um, as soon as you start up the game and then it's got some really interesting features uh, that you adjust the visual appearance but you can also speed time or slow time down so you can actually drive and experience the game at a much slower speed if you need um, more time to process what's going on there's all sorts of options in there and you can really customize and dial it in to your own your own needs and if you contrast that with um, Elden Ring that was launched, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Um, there are some really, really significant accessibility problems in that. There aren't many accessibility options. Uh, it has captions, but the captions don't contrast with the background, which is a kind of a surprising mistake. It doesn't have a screen reader, so you can't navigate the, the menus if you're a visually impaired person. And the community around Elden Ring seems particularly uh, skeptical uh, and, and against the idea of adding accessibility options in. So there's been a lot of feedback from uh, gamers who are trying to play that game and a lot of the other gamers are saying no you can't add that feature it's going to compromise the game it's meant to be difficult if you can't play it you shouldn't be playing the game what they're asking for is not an easy mode necessarily they're just asking um, for some extra help and to be able to customize the settings so that they can be involved in the same way that everyone's involved so yeah gaming's really interesting i'd like to do some work on it in the future Great. Thank you so much for kind of talking more about the gaming side of it. Um, is there anything extra that you'd like to share before we wrap up? Um, with regard to gaming, while I'm talking about gaming, um, I'd steer you towards a website called Can I Play That, which publish, publishes uh, reviews from um, disabled gamers around whether they can play games or not. It also demonstrates some of the hardware that they use, the methods they use for playing games, you know, sip and puff devices, for example, and various types of switches. And uh, It's really fascinating. So yeah, check that out. All right. Well, I don't have any other questions. I don't know if anyone. I don't think so. All right. Um, then I guess we'll wrap up there. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. We really appreciate you discussing our, discussing our different questions and everything. Uh, yes, I really appreciated your insights into the gaming at the end there, uh, especially. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. See the description for links, credits, and license information. <laughs>